1: Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, what's next for Fiat Chrysler after Sergio Marchionne's departure? How both America and Europe are tightening up the rules governing foreign direct investment.
2: The EU at the moment doesn't even have an investment screening regime. So this is setting something up rather than reforming something that already exists.
1: And China's ambitions to connect the world.
3: It is a benevolent gift to the world. But there is another vision that actually this is much more than just railways and bridges and innocent things like that, that it's much more about a master plan for world domination.
1: First, the weekend saw the end of an era at Fiat Chrysler with the shock departure of its chief executive. Here to tell us more is Simon Wright, our motoring correspondent. Well,
0: there's some very sad news over the weekend that Sergio Marchionne, who's been the boss of Fiat and uh, latterly Fiat Chrysler after the merger for 14 years is clearly very gravely ill. He had a routine operation, a panic complication set in, and he's no longer able to carry on as chief executive. I mean, the seriousness is shown by the fact that he was going to step down as chief executive next year anyway. But also the news has emerged that he'll be replaced at Ferrari, where he was expected to remain as a boss until at least 2021 and as chairman of CNH, the industrial arm, which was also spun off from Fiat.
1: Who's taking over?
0: The new man will be a chap called Mike Manley, who's been the boss of the Jeep division, which has made a lot of the profits of Fiat Chrysler in recent years. Fiat Chrysler always promised to promote an internal candidate to carry on Mr. Marchione's work. Mr. Marchione had recently uh, unveiled a five year plan which called for a big expansion in the more sort of profitable bits of the company and uh, sort of winding down some of the less profitable bits. And hopefully, Mr. Manley will be able to see that through. But it really is the end of an era because Marchione was a very sort of special kind of uh, chief executive. He rescued two car companies from the ashes that were very, very, very close to bankruptcy, both Fiat and Chrysler. And he's put them back on a sort of solid footing. So his real feat is he's passing over a car company in, in decent condition. So... Mr. Manny won't face quite the sort of tough challenge that Mr. Marchionny faced.
1: But broadly, if we look across the car industry, it is an industry un- undergoing deep change. So you say he's handed on, you know, a company that's in good nick, but
0: the forces across the industry are huge. That's absolutely right. I mean, he still faces all the challenges of the other car bosses electrification autonomy and mobility services are all going to be uh, the things that the car industry relies on profits in the future. They're going to have to make big investments for what at the moment are quite uncertain returns. So it's still a very, very tough job.
1: And do we have any hints about any changes of direction that he's going to bring in?
0: I think there won't be a great deal of changes of direction. I think the idea of uh, promoting an internal candidate was very much to uh, carry on Mr. Marconi's work. I think Mr. Marconi probably intended to uh, perhaps become chairman, where he could keep an eye on proceedings.
1: Mr. Marchionne had expected to be on the board of Exor, hadn't he? And I should say at this point that two of the board members are also on the members of our board, the Economist Group's board. Would he have been expected to be pulling the levers a bit there?
0: Well, Exor is the uh, Agnelli family's investment vehicle, and it controls Fiat Chrysler. And you think, uh, yes, again, he might have had some say in the future direction of Fiat Chrysler.
1: Simon, thank you. You're listening to Money Talks at Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Next, Jean-Claude Juncker, the president of the European Commission, is visiting Donald Trump in the White House. There are many things on the agenda, but of course one of them is trade. Rachana Shambhog is The Economist's Europe economics correspondent. Rachana, what sort of trade issues are going to be on the agenda, do you think?
2: Cars will be at the top of the agenda. They're the single most traded manufactured good in the world and very important for the EU. And we know President Trump has asked the Commerce Department to look into whether America's imports of cars pose a threat to national security. So Mr. Juncker will probably be going to the White House in an attempt to avert those tariffs being levied it's thought that he might talk about the possibility of a bilateral discussion of lowering tariffs on a broader range of goods or a plurilateral discussion on lowering tariffs on on cars more broadly it's strange the way that this particular discussion is being pitched
1: as so adversarial when on a range of issues from trade to investment in a way, China is more an adversary for both countries. I guess that might be something else that comes up for both of them.
2: That's right. It could very well come up. I mean, there's a kitchen sink of issues that the the two will be discussing when they meet. You're right that both have pinpointed China's economic and trade practices as being something that undercuts Western trade and investment. They're unlikely to talk very much about this particular issue, but there are things happening on investment screening in both the US and the EU, which are sort of worth talking about. Over the next couple of weeks, America's lawmakers are meant to be voting on a bill that expands the scope of a body called CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment into the US. And what it does is assess various foreign acquisitions for threats to American national security. Donald Trump views that as part of his arsenal in his sort of economic battle against China. There's a suspicion that China acquires foreign companies in the hope of gaining their technology, undercutting Western sort of economic dominance. And very broadly speaking, what the changes do is increase the number of deals that will come under scrutiny of CFIUS. For example, minority investments will start to be covered. Deals that involve something called critical technology will also start to be looked at. And real estate investments, if they happen to be near military installations, will also start to be covered. So what we'll see is a very big expansion in the caseload that goes in front of CFIUS. Experts expect it to go up by multiples.
1: And Europe are also considering tightening rules about Chinese engagement in the EU's economy.
2: That's right. Now, these changes aren't explicitly aimed at Chinese investment, but it's clear that that's the motive. And the EU at the moment doesn't even have an investment screening regime. So this is setting something up rather than reforming something that already exists. And in fact, several countries actually don't have a problem with Chinese investment. If you think about countries like Greece and Portugal that have been crisis-stricken, they actually want inward investment. Nevertheless, Mr Juncker earlier this year has introduced a bill in the European Parliament to introduce some kind of information sharing between EU member states and to allow other member states to express an opinion on deals that are happening elsewhere within the
1: Union. So a rare point of convergence really in a relationship that seems to be mostly
2: dominated by issues that are pushing the two sides apart. That's right, Helen. It probably doesn't help matters that only last week, Mr. Trump said that he saw the European Union as the foe. He's very much focused on the bilateral trade relations between America and the European Union. And we'll see whether Mr. Juncker manages to change that viewpoint when they meet on Wednesday.
1: Thanks, Rachana. Thanks. Now, turning from Chinese investment in high tech to Chinese investment in infrastructure. Let's take a look at its plans to remake the world's trade links more to its liking with its Belt and Road Initiative, a vast infrastructure investment scheme in countries it trades with. Some have compared it to the post-war Marshall Plan in its scope. Others spy an attempt to dominate its region and its trade partners by making sure that they are all dependent on Chinese capital. The plan includes investments in all sorts of built infrastructure, including railways, airports, ports, pipelines and roads. In October last year, the American Defence Secretary, James Mattis, questioned the very idea of such designed trade routes from one power. He said in a globalised world, there will be many belts and many roads. David Rennie is the Economist's Beijing bureau chief. He joins me down the line. David, you've been finding out a lot about the Belt and Road Initiative. Give us the big figures, the overview.
3: It is a trillion dollar infrastructure scheme to connect China to the rest of the world. And it was unveiled in a couple of speeches by the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, in 2013. And it's sort of, in the Chinese vision, it is a benevolent gift to the world, uh, starting with its immediate neighbourhood in Eurasia and the Middle East and North Africa and then into Europe, that is going to kind of bestow the joys of Chinese high-speed trains, the Chinese internet, uh, all the kind of construction that China has shown itself to be pretty good at uh, as it modernised China, they're now offering to their neighbours. That's the most benevolent vision. But there is another vision, which you can certainly hear if you go to, say, Congress in the United States. People are very anxious that actually this is much more than just railways and bridges and innocent things like that, that it's much more about a sort of master plan for world domination, and that if countries like America and the West in general aren't careful, they will wake up and see China kind of entangling huge chunks of the world in Chinese standards, technical standards, uh, Chinese internet with all that that means for censorship and spying and stuff and that this is actually a real threat to the West. So
1: you visited the port city of Xiamen to talk to some of the students that China is bringing in from Belt and Road Initiative countries to train them. What did you find out there?
3: Well, China sees the Belt and Road Initiative as much more than just kind of uh, hard infrastructure. It's also a big soft power push. Uh, uh, Xi Jinping has been pretty open that he thinks that it's time for China to export its model of developing an economy, but also its model of government. And so uh, some of the core Belt and Road countries, particularly from sort of the neighboring regions like Southeast Asia, they can go and study at various Chinese universities for free. And I went to Xiamen, which is a core kind of part of the Belt and Road's maritime bit, the the sort of seagoing bit, and found this uh, graduating class of 40 officials and business people from Belt and Road countries in Asia who just spent a year learning not just the Chinese language and Chinese history, but also really kind of imbibing China's vision of the right way for successful countries like China to interact with their poorer neighbours. And it was very striking how they kind of contrast that with the colonial power of countries like Britain, which had you know, operated in their bit of the world uh, before. And they were very much of the view that China has found a better way to help the world than, say, the European colonial powers or America in its day. This become rich
0: by looting East. They all come to our countries and all the other countries and they took all the wealth and they went back. But China is not that. They don't loot. They don't come and take our wealth and go back. They come for trade. But others, they came, they conquered our countries, Mm -hmm. invaded our countries. And when they go back, they took all the wealth and they put more more, more and more uh, problems to our countries and left And then we are suffering from those problems still now.
1: And did you change your opinion on, I don't know where you started on that balance between benevolent vision and, you know, master plan for world domination, but did you shift after talking to them?
3: Not particularly talking to them, because one of the things that's very striking about China's most ardent fans abroad is that they're often countries which have their own major human rights records or pretty bad records of governance. And so two of the people I interviewed who the Chinese put forward turned out, after a bit of kind of prodding as to exactly what they did back home, to be quite senior naval officers in the Sri Lankan navy. And they were pretty clear that one of the reasons Sri Lanka likes China is that uh, during their difficulties, as they kind of put it, by which they meant a very vicious civil war, China had never judged them and had never criticised them and had actually been a stalwart ally. Now, There are other people, including The Economist, who would say that the Sri Lankan military has quite a lot to answer for in terms of human rights abuses for many, many years. So you're talking to Sri Lankan military officers who like the fact that, as they put it, China does not judge. It just hands over money and and helps them to build stuff.
0: China is very close to our culture, isn't it? And easy to accept. Easy to accept. Why why easy to accept? Cultural values, which are Asian values. Asian values are there in this model. They are not going to impose the Western mod, uh, values on us. During last few years, compared to the Western countries, always they put lot of conditions, lot of pressure. compared to that, China, no conditions. So that is very important thing to our country.
1: You mentioned that Belton Road would go further though than the neighborhood and you know reach into Europe eventually. How would Europe feel about this sort of investment? I mean, from a country where they're trying to export an entire model,
3: an entire way of looking at the world? So one of the most striking things about covering the Belton and Road, and I spent literally months trying to sort of speak to people who really have looked at it carefully and have worked with Belton Road projects, there is no official map of where the Belton Road goes you can get various unofficial maps. And that makes some people very suspicious that there's a secret map somewhere in a kind of safe in the Chinese Communist Party headquarters. I don't think that's quite the case. I think it's deliberately vague. And it's certainly grown. It used to be all about Eurasia, sort of Central Asia, railway lines and things. It's now grown like Topsy. So, you know, there have been Belt and Road initiatives announced for New Zealand, uh, for Latin America, for half of Africa, even for outer space recently. Um, But Europe is certainly a big part of it because Europe is a big, rich part of the world with land connections with China. And they're very keen to talk up how if European governments play their cards right, China will come and build a port for them and then deliver lots and lots of ships that make that port Profitable, So that certainly makes some Western European governments very jumpy that maybe China is playing divide and rule with the European Union, trying to befriend uh, maybe Eastern European governments that are not always on good terms with uh, Brussels and Berlin, maybe because they've got, you know, fairly authoritarian governments. And China has a certain genius for finding countries that fancy an alternative. Maybe they're being uh, nagged by Brussels for not having the best democratic standards and china comes along and says well be my friend instead here's some money let's do business together or you can see huge uh, chinese investments in a place like greece which felt pretty sore about the austerity imposed on it by the european union and china was there suddenly saying well why don't we buy your enormous container port just near athens and we can run it and then you don't perhaps have to listen to all of that nagging from brussels so you can see that europe there are bits of europe where that idea of an alternative is pretty attractive
1: and so that's kind of the malign way to spin this, that they are there, as you say, with a genius for coming in when, uh, you know, when the, say, less the wiser heads might be too annoying for you. But actually, it's good to have lots of different sources of investment. And if China's ready to invest elsewhere, well, fine, Greece needs investment, Portugal needs investment. And great, they have a port.
3: I mean, should we be grateful, really? Where we would come down, I think, is that China has deep pockets, it has companies that make stuff uh, cheaply and in a robust way that's actually pretty good for its neighbourhood. That's all good. And certainly Western governments, if they're worried by that, they can't just go around nagging people not to take China's money and then leave it at that. I think where there is a role for the West and international organisations, multilateral banks, is in looking at some of the secrecy that surrounds these deals. Because I think one real criticism, valid criticism, is that even as China builds railway lines that could do some good, They lend money on terms which are completely secret, where the interest rates are actually quite high. And in a couple of big cases, governments have actually found themselves unable to pay back that Chinese money, and they found themselves falling into debt traps. And famously, there was a port in Sri Lanka, which in late 2017 had to be surrendered to a Chinese company in its entirety because the Sri Lankan government uh, couldn't repay back the loan. And so there's a real concern that China is actually encouraging dependency or being irresponsible, depending on how you look at it. David Rennie,
1: thank you very much. Thank you. Let us know what you think about this or any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist.